Thank you, students. You may be seated there, and thank you for, I was going to say thank you for coming to chapel, but you didn't really have a choice, did you? So thank you for obeying the rules and being here, and you've almost made it to Thanksgiving break. That didn't sound that, you want to stay in school, don't you? That didn't sound that exciting. You've almost made it to Thanksgiving break. All right, there you go. How many of you are going home for Thanksgiving break? Let me see. How many of you get to stay here in Lancaster? And you get to pay $10 to eat a delicious Thanksgiving meal on Sunday night. Or you can serve. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, actually. And I figured, I, I figured uh, getting to, to Thanksgiving break, are there any college students who could use a few extra, uh, some spending money, a few extra dollars? I've got some money to give out. So just as you're paying attention throughout the service, I'll maybe ask a few questions. And uh, for those, I'll look for the first hand if they get the answer correct. I'll give out some money as we look at our message this morning, but uh, I, I do love this place, and I'm thankful for what God's doing here, and let me just say, I was telling Dr. R. and, and uh, Dr. England as we were walking the campus, the first time I was on this campus, I was a college student. I was your age, and I came to a West Coast Baptist College graduation ceremony right when they had opened their brand new auditorium, which is now your brand new children's building. Isn't that amazing what God can do? And I had no idea what God would do in this ministry. I had no idea what God would do in my life. But I'm thankful that there were some, uh, some teachers and professors and visiting pastors that would preach that invested in me when I was your age. And uh, now I have the privilege to do the same. And may I just stop and say, we need another generation of young people to raise up and to live for God for a lifetime, to proclaim his word and what you're doing and what you're training for. It matters. And uh, get all you can in this place and learn and grow. And, and a quarter of a century from now, 25 years from now, who knows where God will lead you and how he'll be using you. And what a joy it's been to see all that God has done and is doing. And by the way, you hear the stories. I remember being in college, hearing the stories of God did this when in, in my grandpa's years. And God did this in America. And God did this. We serve the same God. Amen. God is not done working in your generation. God's still at work and he wants to and can use you. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at some things about a biblical leadership style for, uh, for a group of young people that are training to be Christian servant leaders in the next generation. And I hope that the message will be a help to you. I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment. When you see it, I'm going to look for the first hand that goes up and can tell me who that picture is. Go ahead and put the picture up. Let's see who can tell me who that is. Oh, not a staff member. Any students? They're like, have no idea. Right here. Yes. Bobby Knight. Come on down. 20 bucks for you right there. All right. Bobby Knight. Anybody like, how many of you say, I have no idea. I've never heard the name Bobby Knight. I have, look at that right there. No idea who Bobby Knight is. He, uh, here it says on a sweatshirt, it says Indiana basketball. So I'm not going to ask you what team he's famous for coaching for. Got another $20. Who can tell me the last team he coached for? The last team he coached for. Google is your friend. All right. The last team he coached for, he got fired from. Braxton, your home state. The last team he coached for, who can tell me? Right here. That's it right there. Come on down. Texas, did one of the staff members cheat? Did they tell you? He's sitting by all the old folks over here. And uh, the people that know the answers to these questions right there, you need to split that with those over there. Here's the reality. If I were to ask today, who do you think is the greatest college basketball coach of all time? 
Many of you would not, many of you did not know who that was. Many of you, the name would not be Bobby Knight. It might be, if you're, if you're a historian, it might be John Wooden. Uh, maybe it's Coach K. He's the winningest basketball coach of all time. If you were a UNC fan back in the day, maybe Dean Smith and others from New York, Jim Beheim at Syracuse. The reality is, almost no one, if you ask them today, who's the greatest college basketball coach of all time, almost no one would say Bobby Knight. But Dr. Getch, if we ask people in the 70s and 80s, I wouldn't know, but if we, you might have known. If we ask people in the 70s and 80s, most would have probably said Bobby Knight. They might have said John Wooden, Dean Smith, but what's that? The last, the, the last it's exactly right, the last undefeated team. Let's give him $5 for that right there, all right? There we go, right there. There you go. Really? At Army? Or got right there. So we could talk, we'll talk afterwards, but we, we're going to trade some basketball stories. If you ask most college basketball fans in the 70s or 80s who the best coach in the country was at that time, you probably would have heard Bobby Knight. At that time, he would have been described as hard-nosed, old school, a, a, a leader of men, somebody that really you want your boy to play for. When he retired, he was the winningest coach in, in college basketball history. He had won 902 games during his career. The man who holds that distinction now, Coach K., actually played for and learned under as an assistant coach under Bob, Bobby Knight. He played for him at Army. Bob Knight's Indiana teams won 11 Big Ten titles, three NCAA national titles. The last undefeated team, as Dr. Getch told us, in 1976, the last team to ever do that. He was the gold medal winning coach of the U.S. Olympic team in 1984. He coached Michael Jordan on that team. He was the, uh, becoming one of only three coaches to ever win the NIT championship. Ladies, am I boring you yet? Or is anybody getting bored in here yet? The NIT championship, the NCAA championship, and an Olympic gold medal. No doubt, one of the most successful college coaches in history. The interesting thing is, there isn't a single college today in 2023 that would hire him if he were still living. He just recently passed, I think in the last week or two, if I remember correctly. Not a single college today would hire him. In fact, he was let go in the early 2000s and hasn't, didn't coach for the last 20 plus years of his life. Unfortunately, as his career progressed, he became more, known more for his temper, for his angry outbursts, his allegations of inappropriate conduct as, as a coach. He was accused of choking a player during practice and several other run-ins with fans. Interestingly, one of the greatest, most uh, decorated coaches of all time, if you go to Google now and type in Bobby Knight, I believe the first autofill that would pop up is throws chair. And this video will come up. I think it's about 30 or 40 seconds. Fred Jasper's now chasing Bobby Knight back to his chair. And he's got, got him right there. There's the tee. Technical against the bench and against Bob Knight. Steve Reed, an excellent free throw shooter, will have the honors shooting the technicals. Looky here, looky here. Bobby Knight just threw his chair. Clear across the free throw lane. And I think uh, Fred Unbelievable. Jackson, he picked up another tee. And that is how He's remembered by many. Ultimately, Indiana University President Miles Brand fired him for his conduct in 2000, a Hall of Fame career ending in ignominy.
Can you imagine Coach Sisson when he gets mad, throwing his chair across the court here, here in the Walther Center? That's how he was remembered. And we can argue whether or not maybe this generation and we could use a, a little more old, hard-nosed, old-school leadership. We could talk about those things. But the reality remains that Knight's life and career were marked by and for some people defined by his toxic leadership and actions that no university or professional team would hire today in this day and age. For better or worse, in college basketball and in professional athletics, there's a new type of leader that's expected. Right or wrong, there's a new type of leader that's expected. And this morning, I want to bring you over the next few moments a message that I've titled, Introducing a New Type of Leader. We're going to look at who can tell me, the first ladies, if you didn't know the basketball, this is only a ladies question. Who can tell me the first king of Israel? First king of Israel. Yes, ma'am. King Saul. Come on down. Here it is. King Saul. And who can tell me, $5 extra if you get the chapter, who can tell me what book, and if you get the chapter, I'll give you a bonus, we find the story of David and Goliath. Who can tell me that? Yes, sir. Wrong. Whoever's Bible teacher, we need some points off there. Yes, ma'am. All the way in the back. Oh, the far back one is the one I was looking at. I'm sorry. Right there. Yes. Yes. First Samuel 17. Come on down. There we go. We'll give her an extra $5 there when she gets here. Dr. Getch, would you give that to her? Oh, I'm running out. Those are 10s, not 20s anymore. There we go. 25. There we go. So let's turn there if you have your Bibles. First Samuel chapter number 17. First Samuel chapter number 17. And in First Samuel 17, we know of it as the story of David and Goliath, but really there's a lot to learn about the first king of Israel and his leadership style, King Saul. And this morning what I want to do with the next generation of what I pray are the Christian leaders in our churches and in our nation and around the world as missionaries and wherever God leads you and wherever God calls you, what I pray, we're going to contrast the leadership styles of King Saul, what I would call a toxic king, and of King David, what I would call a, a godly shepherd or a servant leader. It's interesting. Pastor Chapel, uh, he, he ru runs and has led for many years here at this church, the Spiritual Leadership Conference. And at that conference that just took place here a couple of months ago, he has emphasized for decades the phrase servant leadership. In fact, I went to the bookstore, and I have this book in my library, but I grabbed this from the bookstore this morning here on campus. He literally wrote the book on it about a quarter of a century ago, Guided by Grace, and right here, Servant Leadership for the Local Church. We're going to look at this morning two different types of leadership styles. And by the way, when Pastor Chapel wrote that book, in some of our circles, that was not the leadership style that was really promoted or modeled. That was kind of countercultural as a young man when he wrote that the Bobby Knight really hard-nosed, old-school, almost just fear-based leadership was pretty prevalent. And Pastor Chapel, as a young man, God began to do a work of grace in his heart. And my prayer is that there will be another generation that from Scripture will see these contrasting leadership styles and will make a decision, God, whatever areas of leadership that you give me, I want to be guided by grace, a godly shepherd, not a toxic king. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter number 17. It is in this story where the leadership of David really comes onto the scene in a public way. He's already been anointed by Samuel as king of Israel, but he's not yet assumed his position. He is an unknown shepherd, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, 
and he bursts onto the national scene for Israel here in chapter 17. And it's here that we're introduced to a new type of leader. To this point, because Saul was the first king, King Saul was the only leader that, that the, the nation of Israel had ever known. It was the only model they had seen, humanly speaking, in leadership. And David shows them, as a man after God's own heart, David shows them that a national leader could be different, could have a different heart, could handle things differently. And I want us to contrast and compare a toxic king and a godly shepherd. Here's the question facing you, and all of you will be leaders in different re, uh, roles and relationships in your lives as husbands, as wives, as moms, as dads at work. Even today, there are leaders on this campus, and there are leaders in the dorms, and there are leaders helping in ministries. And, 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 and to look at, will I be a toxic king or will I be a godly shepherd? We say the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And the reality is, here's, here's a few realities regarding leadership. The reality is all of us have seen toxic leadership on one level or another. Do you know why? Because the reality is that all of us on some level are toxic leaders. We all have sin in our lives. I've been married to, to my wife Tiffany for 23 plus years. Do you know there have been some times in there that I have not been a godly loving husband, that I've been a toxic leader at times because of the toxicity of sin in my life? We have all, and this message is, and as we compare and contrast, for you to say, yeah, my pastor or my dad or my mom or this teacher or that, this is for us to take inventory and say, God, where is the toxicity in my life that you want to get out so that I can be more like a man after God's own heart, King David? By the way, there seems to be a cottage industry springing up in our nation and online with Twitter accounts and Anon accounts and meme accounts and podcasts and years ago blogs kind of just comparing and contrasting. Well, my leader was more toxic than your leader. and Let's all get together and share our war stories. Hey, by the way, there's no such thing as a perfect pastor. As, and I'm not, I'm not justifying ungodly abusive leadership. But what I'm saying is there's no such thing as a perfect dad, a perfect mom, a perfect family. All of us have been and at times will be these things. We're all prone to that, but the goal is to become more like Christ. Let's look at our passage. I think most of us, this chapter, chapter 17, has 58 verses in it. I don't have the time. We're not going to be able to read all of this. I think most of us know the story of David and Goliath pretty well. I am going to ask you to keep your Bibles open, and we're going to just pull some highlights out, jumping through this chapter a little bit, because we understand the story, to pull out some attributes but let's begin in chapter 17 and verse number one. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named who, students? Of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. 
And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, about 100 pounds. He had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, about 15 pounds. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Goliath is crying. Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we'll, we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Would you read verse 11 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We're going to look at four areas of contrast between Saul and David. I see here first a toxic king. Do you see it in verse 11? A toxic king lives in fear. A toxic king lives in fear. Do you see it in verse 11? And Saul, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The next generation of leaders, can I say to you this morning that fear is a terrible posture for a leader? It's a terrible place to lead from. A, a leader who leads from a position of fear will almost always use and abuse people to protect themselves. That's what Saul does, does here in this, in this, uh, in this passage. Uh, fearful leaders will be overbearing, illogical, unkind, and manipulative. manipulative. They will view every interaction and relationship from a posture of, who's trying to hurt me now? How is that staff member trying to get, get, get undermine me? How is that church member trying to split our church? What's going on here? Always suspecting that someone is trying to destroy them. <clears throat> Excuse me. They read into everyone's actions things that aren't there. If you study the reigns of dictators like Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, and others, you'll see unbelievable mistreatment of their closest confidants, sometimes going as far to assassinate their own family members. Why? They're constantly in fear. My, my mom might, might destroy my kingdom. My brother, my brother-in-law, this person. And those are extreme examples, but they illustrate the truth nonetheless. Young people leading in fear or by fear is a terrible way to lead. Can I say this? You cannot lead well with defensive walls up all the time. Will you be hurt, Dr. Getch? Will they be hurt by people that they love and invest in? Sure. What did Paul say? Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? What did Paul say? There was a time you would have plucked out your own eyes for me, but you know what Paul kept doing? He said, but none of these, I don't know what's going to happen in the ne next season of my ministry. All I know is that bonds and affliction await me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy. You can finish your course defensive in a hole isolated somewhere, or you can finish your course with joy. You can't do both. And what happens to fearful leaders is we have walls up viewing everyone as an enemy out to get us. You must, as we move into leadership roles, you must open yourself up, being willing to be hurt by those you seek to love. By the way, when a leader lives in fear, it impacts those he leads. Look at verse 24, please. Look at verse 24. And all the men of Israel 
when they saw the man fled from him and were sore afraid. These were the trained armies of Israel cowering in fear. And I believe it started with the leader, Saul, who was a mighty man of war, but he was living in fear. Secondly, what do, what do toxic kings do? They live in fear. Secondly, they live to be served. A toxic king lives to be served. Verse number eight, it says, when Goliath is talking, am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Now, technically, that's a true statement. They were servants to Saul. But as you study, and I don't have time to go through there, but as you study Saul's reign in 1 Samuel, you see that he saw people as a way and a means to enrich his life, to make his life better. You are pawns in my kingdom. Life is about me. It's about my worship. It's about my kingdom. And by the way, that can happen in a home. That can happen at a business. That can happen in a church that we as the leaders live to be served. But what does the Bible say? The son of man came not to be ministered to, but to minister. As we leave, the goal is to serve, not be served. The goal is to allow God to use us to build people, not use people to build us up. As we study that, we see that we hear a lot about servant leadership, but do those around us see a lot of it. Toxic kings view people as pawns to make their lives better. You want a better marriage when you get married, young people? Live to serve, not be served. You want a better family? Teach your children to serve, not be served. You want a thriving church? Serve people. Don't live for them to serve you. We are co-laborers together, not I am the king and they are my pawns. A toxic king lives to be served. What did Christ do? The last gathering with his team? He washed their feet. What was he doing? My last act with you as we're all gathered together I want you to remember me serving. And then I want you to go and do likewise. And here's what he said, by this, by what? By a heart of humble service and love. Shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. Number three, what do toxic kings do? Verse number 25 says, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man, talking to David here, have you seen this man that has come up surely to defy Israel as he come up and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. A toxic king uses others to build his kingdom. We just talked about that a little bit in the last point. What do we see with Saul here? I'm not gonna risk my life, but even his own family members were pawns in his kingdom. I'll give my daughter away to whoever's willing to go risk their lives. I think Saul understood, humanly speaking, it was a suicide mission. So I'm not going out there, but I'm fine with you putting your life on the line and I'll make it so that your family never has to pay taxes. I'll give you a lot of money. I'll give you my daughter. Everybody for Saul was a pawn to build his kingdom. I'll make you independently wealthy. Even with all of that, there were no volunteers because it was a suicide mission. And then what does a toxic king do? In verse 33, what happens? We see that David comes and David says, is there not a cause? And David says, I'm ready to fight. God can help me. And look at verse 33, if you will. Let's read it aloud together. Ready? Begin. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. 
What does a toxic king do? He gauges everything by what he can see. You're not old enough. You're not strong enough. You're not experienced enough. You're you're not good enough. There was no room in Saul's leadership for what God could do. If it didn't make sense to Saul and he couldn't figure it out, then it was impossible. Saul found security in his plans, in his power, in his strength, and in his wisdom. By the way, Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. David was short and ready, but Saul wasn't willing to step out and fight. It says in verse number 38, And Saul armed David with his armor, put a helmet of brass upon his head. He armed him with a coat of mail. Hey, Maybe if you have what my, I'm not willing to do it. Maybe if you take my armor, you can do it. Try that. And David said, I can't use this. So we see the four attributes or four of the attributes of a toxic king. Now I want you to see a godly shepherd and we'll be done. We see four attributes of David here in this passage of a godly shepherd. And my challenge to you as you leave this place where they're training servant leaders, the, the tagline of West Coast Baptist College on the logo. It is training laborers for his harvest. Where they run a conference every year called Spiritual Leadership Conference, trying to train the principles of of servant leadership. My prayer is that you and I would ask God to help us not to go out here to build our name and to build our kingdom and to build, build, build our following, but God, would you use me in whatever way you want to proclaim your name, to impact your kingdom. Not as a toxic king, but as a godly shepherd. What does a godly shepherd do? Number one, a godly shepherd lives by faith. We already read verse 25. Would you look at verse 26? So they told David what you get if you go out and fight Goliath. Look at verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? God was real in David's life. He's alive in my life. Who is this guy? I don't care how tall he is. I know the God that I serve. Verse 27. And the people answered him after this manner saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Look at verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother. Sometimes when you step out to live for God, even those closest to you will make fun of you, will cast doubt, will tell you God can't use you, I know you. Eliab, his eldest brother, what did he say? He heard when he spake unto the men, his anger was kindled. By the way, Eliab was a trained soldier. David was just a shepherd. But Eliab wasn't doing anything. He said, why hast thou come, why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you hear it? Hey, David. What are you doing here, man? And who's watching your little sheep? Who's watching those? You got got a few sheep back there, don't you, David? Don't you got to get back to your minimum wage job, David? By the way, at this point, David's already been anointed king of Israel. And and those around him don't see him. And look at verse, he says, I know thy pride. Be careful about thinking you know what the motives of somebody else. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down. Thou mightest see the battle. You just want to see what's going on. Would you read verse 29 aloud? Ready? begin. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not? Verse 30, and he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. What are we doing here? We serve the living God. Is there not a cause? 
what are we doing here? We serve the living God. Is there not a cause? Isn't somebody willing to fight for our God? Isn't there someone in this generation that believes that God can't? You're, you're a soldier. What are we doing here? Is there not a cause? It said he went and said after the same. And they kept answering. But yeah, somebody's got to go, but I'm not willing. Somebody's got to do it, but I'm not willing. And is there not a cause? Won't somebody fight for my God? Isn't there somebody that's going to stand up? He's defying our living God. What do we see here? David, a young man, maybe somewhere around your age, a young man of great faith. God can work in this generation. By the way, I understand the news and I understand the politics and I understand what it feels like. And sometimes there are those around that God's done. Goliath's too big. The world's too big. The culture's too strong. California's too communist. Whatever you want to say. God can't work in 2023. And I say to you, will you be a godly shepherd that lives by faith and says, God, do it again in my generation. God, use me, whatever that looks like, whether it's here or there, whether I'm known or unknown, is there not a cause? God, I believe you can still work in my generation. A godly shepherd lives by faith. Yes, it's scary, and I might not know how it's going to turn out, but God deserves our trust. Look what he says to Goliath. His, this nine-foot-tall trained killer, verse 45. David. Little shepherd boy with no armor, no real weapons, just a little sling. Then said David to the Philistines, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear. You look stronger. All the odds are on you. If they were betting in Vegas, everybody's putting their money on, on, on Goliath. You come with a shield. But what, do I, what does David come with? I come to thee in what? T young people, I come to thee in what? The name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And what does he say? This day will the Lord deliver me, thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the earth, of the, of the air, and to, to the wild beasts of the earth. By the way, David is not boasting in himself. He said it in verse 45. He says, I come in the name of the Lord God. Verse 46, it's the Lord who's going to deliver thee, not my strength. Today, God's going to win a big victory. Then what does he say at the end of verse 46? Why? Not so that I can get my name on social media. Not so I can get invited to preach at that conference. Not so that everybody knows me. That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. That's why I'm serving him. I believe God can. Verse 47 and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is whose? The Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What is that? That's a young man of faith. God can. God will. I believe it. I'm willing to put my life on the line for it. I know the God that I serve, a godly shepherd. What is David basically saying? And really by his actions, what's happening? May we introduce you to a new kind of leader, Israel. May we introduce you to a new type of leader. Oh, he's not as tall. He might not be as handsome. He doesn't have as impressive armor. But may I introduce you to a leader that doesn't only trust himself and doesn't, isn't lifted up in pride, but trusts his God. Number two, number two, a godly shepherd lives to serve. By the way, on that last point, is there any room in your plans for your life for what only God can do? 
I'm thankful for classes. I'm thankful for seminars. I'm thankful for conferences. We've made a science of spiritual leadership. Follow this pattern and read this book and, and, and follow all these things. But is there any room in your life for what only God can do? A godly shepherd lives to serve. Look at verse 13, please. Skip back, if you will. Verse number 13. You're listening well. We're almost done. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep, the act of a servant, unknown service. Verse 16 and the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. Look at verse 17. And Jesse said unto David, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. Verse 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for battle. David's brothers, they were involved in the exciting stuff. They were at the battle. They were on the front lines. David, an unknown shepherd serving on the backside where nobody saw him, the backside of the desert, the backside of the wilderness where no one knew what he was doing. A faithful, godly, unknown shepherd. What was David? David was nothing more than just an Uber Eats delivery driver for his brothers. I'm gonna bring some cheese and some corn. That's all he was. His brothers, soldiers, they had the pictures up in the house. I'm so proud of my boy. They had the bumper sticker on their chariot. My boy's in Saul's army. They didn't have the, the my, my son's the greatest shepherd you've ever met. He was an unknown servant, but he was willing to serve his dad. He was willing to serve the sheep. He was willing to serve his brothers. David gladly and wholeheartedly served his father and his brothers, even after he had been the, anointed as the next king of Israel, a new type of leader for sure. May I stop and say this? You and I, if God leads you into vocational ministry, into pastoral ministry, men, in some capacity, we will never serve well until we are secure in our identity in Christ. When we know who we are in Christ, we can serve without wondering what, who's watching, who's seeing, what's happening. And may I just stop and say this to some future pastors and ministry leaders? I believe, unfortunately, that often insecurity is a plague in pastoral leadership. Pastors are sometimes some of the most insecure people in the church. Sometimes those whose full-time job it is to proclaim the good news are the angriest, least joyful people in the church. Young men, ask God to deliver you and to understand who you are in Christ, to deliver you from insecurity that causes you to keep people down and under your thumb and keep them and allow them to flourish in their God-given gifts. Serve your team. Don't demand service. Rejoice in the successes of those on your team. What was Saul? Saul was unbelievably insecure. David killed 10,000 in Saul's kingdom, by the way. Time to kill him. We got to get rid of him. We can't have anybody in my kingdom that's doing more than me. By the way, David killing 10,000 reflected really good on Saul's leadership. But Saul didn't see it that way because he was insecure. Rejoice. You get out into ministry, another man being used mightily of God is not a threat to you. If the gospel be preached, Paul said, I rejoice. Amen. 
Be secure. God's using you in the way he wants to use you. And God's using that man in the way he wants to use him. And rejoice. Well, I know the naughtiness of his heart. He's just trying to build his own name. Let God take care of all of that and just be a faithful, godly servant where God calls you. Number three, what does the godly shepherd do? He uses his life to build God's kingdom. Would you read verse 46 aloud with me? 1 Samuel 17, verse 46. Let's read it aloud. Ready? Begin. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Here it is. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Would you say that last phrase aloud? A little louder. That all the earth... One more time, that all, that's what we're training for here. That's why we're going to go out and serve God wherever he calls us, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. God, Jehovah, the same God that they served, David served there, we serve today. David said, my life isn't about my kingdom. Saul said, my life is about my kingdom. David said, my life is about God's kingdom. And then lastly, Verse number 34, David said unto Saul, because Saul told him, you're too young. Remember we read that? Verse 34, David said unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear and the uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Look at this in verse 37, last verse we'll read. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. A godly shepherd, number four, gauges everything by who God is. A toxic king gauges everything by what he can see. A godly shepherd gauges everything by who God is. I've already seen God work. I, God worked in my past. God worked in my life. God helped me deliver me out of the hand of the lion, out of the paw of the bear. God can do it again. I don't care if I'm too young, if I'm too small, if I'm not trained. It's not about me. God can do it again. David had access to the power of an extraordinary God. Listen to this. Because he didn't think he was extraordinary himself. Do you remember when Saul, do you remember when God's hand was on Saul? What did it say when he was... Little in his own eyes. God, David had access to the power of an extraordinary God because he didn't think he was extraordinary himself. Young men and young women, as you go out and God begins to use you, and even now, as God is using you, and there are leaders on this campus, it's not you, it's God. It's not your kingdom, it's God's kingdom. Give him the glory. Stay small in your own eyes. God, I believe you want to use us and I'm gonna try to do whatever I can by faith. But David was focused on who God is, not what David could do. David believed if God had been faithful in the past, he will be faithful today. If God has protected us before, he will protect us again. If God could win those small victories when no one was watching, God can win this big victory when everyone's watching. What's wrong with you guys, David said. Don't you serve the same God I do? 
God's not, God didn't only work in, in Dr. Getch's generation and Dr. R's generation and, and Brother Weaver's generation and Pastor Chapel's generation. It's the same God that worked in David's generation and the same God that worked in the 1600s and the same God that worked in the 1800s and the same God that worked in Spurgeon and in Moody and in Paul Chapel and in whoever you want to name, you have access to the same God, is the same gospel, the same power. Will we believe that he can do it again in our generation? that all the earth may know there is a God in wherever God's called you to lead. Unlike Saul, David found his security in God's plan and power, not his own plans and power. Saul said, it's got to make sense to me and I'm not strong enough. David said, I'll let God figure it out. He is strong enough. I like what one commentator I read on this passage said. Listen to this, please. Only one person in our lives can be seen as great. It is either God or us. This is a strong blow to many of us who have been fed a steady diet of praise. Our parents, teachers, and peers have convinced us that we are distinguished, extraordinary, and just plain awesome. And perhaps we are more talented than some others around us. But the danger of relying on our talents and skills is that we run the risk of following Saul, not David. Here, listen to this. When it comes to making lasting impact in God's kingdom, No one has what it takes, no matter how talented. This is why David, even after he becomes a king, can pen a song like Psalm 23. He sees himself as a sheep, and sheep are dumb. They focus on the patch of grass immediately in front of them and know nothing else. Essentially, every predator alive can easily dispatch a sheep. If a sheep thrives, it is always because of the care of the shepherd, not the skill of the sheep. Some of you are pretty impressed by you. And if the sheep thrives, it is always because of the skill of the shepherd, not the the care of the shepherd, not the skill of the sheep. David knew this intimately, that the Lord was his shepherd and he embraced his sheeply role. We need to stay humble, engage everything by who God is. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission said this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with him. Oh, that we would have more leaders like David who sought and lived in the power of God and not his own power. Some of you are already moving and are in some roles of leadership and God has some great plans if you'll stay humble and surrender to him for everyone in this room. He'll use you in his work and in his kingdom. But you're going to have to remember your natural tendency is going to lead to toxic, is going to lean toward toxic leadership. We all want to be served, not serve. We all want to be praised, not to give praise. We all naturally lean toward pride, not humility. And a toxic king lives in fear, lives to be served, uses others to build his kingdom, engages everything by what he can see, a godly shepherd. Would God raise up a multitude of godly men and women who will be godly shepherds in their God-given roles of leadership? in the decades to come, who live by faith, who live to serve and not be served, who use their life to build God's kingdom, not God's people to build their kingdom, and who gauge everything by who God is, not who they are. 